All right, how we doing out there? Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Trilitics Podcast. I am your host, Bun B, from UGK, alongside my co-host, as usual, Charles Big Angry Law Adams. Charles, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you, sir? You seem kind of under the weather. I am not good today. I'll be very honest. I'm not in my best of health, but I don't want to sit here and act like a big baby and be like, boo-hoo. I got a stomachache. It's it's an antibiotic-induced stomachache, but... From a broken tooth and a abscess, uh, took some antibiotics on the empty stomach, so I don't feel as good as I normally feel. But I'm probably not close to being the sickest person in the world right now. So we'll push for it. What do you think? I, I do think we should push for. I would like to remind you that the last time you told me you had a upset stomach and you ignored it, you ended up almost being forced into a hospital in Prague or Budapest. Budapest. I was so just, I was just discussing that with my wife because right. I was um I wanted to drink some Sprite and the problem was because of the last stomach issue I had um that was the problem I was like you guys went to dinner I said look I'm going to stay here I'm going to drink some soda maybe smoke a bit hopefully that'll you know ease my stomach and when the doctor ended up coming after an hour of projectile vomiting in a hotel room that no one ever had stayed in before because we were in the <laughs> brand new Ritz Carlton. Brand new Ritz Carlton in Prague that had literally just opened the day before. Um, the doctor told me that basically with the stomach situation I had, either the smoking or the soda would have caused me to get sick. Putting them both together created a hostile environment in my gut. Um, so I had a Sprite today, and so I was very uncertain about drinking it because it was either going to make me better. Mm-hmm. Or make me worse, which would have basically canceled today's podcast recording. Right. Thankfully, it worked. I belched a little bit. Stomach is eased. Okay. Um, but I'm still a little bit nauseous at the condition of the nation we live in. I definitely want to talk about. Um, let's start with the National Guard. Okay. Let's start with the National Guard. So, um, obviously, there was a report that came out, and, and and you know, I've been I've been following this a lot because we're a border state. And um, the actual influx of immigrants across the Mexican border had been going down considerably over the last few months. And um, as at the lowest period, it's been in a, in a few years. But, of course, there was the report that came out about, I believe it's the people from Nicaragua. Right. In, right. in different Southern, Ameri- Southern American countries that are trying to leave and come to America for amnesty because there's such a high level of violence in their countries. And after the report was put out, and then also in March was the largest number of people crossing the border, trying to cross the border um, illegally that it had been in a while. Right. So because of the uptick of the influx of immigrants coming for whatever reason, mainly to escape violence in the country, our president took it upon himself to order National Guard members to go down to the border and, I, I want to use air quotes here, protect our border. Um, obviously, I'm not with this. I know the conditions on the border. A lot of the, you know, cartel members are working the border, and that's my whole concern with this. Um, with them bringing these people down to the border, and Nash- National Guard people, they're weekend warriors. You know what I'm saying? It's I a certain I, they're they're weekend warriors. I don't think this is what we need to go down and protect the border. Obviously, we're not going to see eye to eye on this one. But, uh, yeah, no, I have a bit of concern about them sending National Guard members down to the border. Um, you know, National Guard members, while they are part 
of the armed forces of this country. They're, in my mind, I believe that they're the most least prepared for conflict. They're not saying that they're going on a war-torn border or whatever. You know, I mean, they... But it is a war-torn border. I mean, but, I, in my opinion, I mean, if you look at, we're not honestly well, reporting the the degree of crime associated with narco terrorism, um, and and I'm the first to say that narco terrorism is our fault. You know, it's our our appetite for drugs and our prohibition of drugs that has eviscerated Mexico. Right. I do think the caravan, and I was thinking it was El Salvador. It might have been Nicaragua. It might have been El Salvador. Um, I I, I, I want to believe. That's why I was hesitant right. to say Nicaragua. Right. It is a nation, whichever nation, it's a nation that has refugee status with the American immigration system. So if they were to get to the border, they could claim, you know. The fact that they are looking for asylum and they can stay, unlike Mexico. Um, but I just, I don't, you know, I a lot of people in the National Guard had been full-time members of the military and then became members of the National Guard afterwards. Uh, they're all trained the same, in my opinion. Um, they all, you know, you can call them weekend warriors, but they all go through periods of training every summer. I just think there's a yeah. different level of urgency when you call the National Guard and when you call, like, the Army or the, the, the Marine Corps. Well, I like would that. agree, and I would actually be more bothered if they were deploying American, like the Marines and the, and the Army, you know, American troop troops in our border. But I do think there is a huge crime issue. That's why Obama built the wall that he built, which was a big fence, between El Paso and Juarez, because you had so much murder, so much crime bleeding through, and Obama's wall that no one wants to talk about actually was highly effective. Now, it is absurd to build a wall all the way across the lower border. Uh, I think an electronic wall makes more sense. I do think uh, immigration needs assistance down there, and I do think... I think both sides exploit the issue. Like, I think we have this whole shadow economy of immigrants that are... And before I say this, I want to say... Being an illegal immigrant member of the workforce is not anywhere comparable to the horror of the institution of African slavery in America. But I do think that they are the modern equivalent of of slaves in, in America. You have human trafficking. You have people held without, you know, and it's clearly not as gruesome or as ugly as slavery, but it is still gruesome and ugly. And while the Democrats use it as a rallying cry, I think they use it and abuse it because they're not trying to fix the situation. Until we can get these immigrants out of the shadow economy, they're still going to be exploited. Now, I think the Republicans do the same thing. I think the Republicans, you saw that following Trump for Vice, that right. they embolden the, these working-class Americans to, uh, you know, with the, the, oh, they're going to take our jobs, you know, like South Park said. But, you know, even Reagan said it in the 80s when we were both kids. You know, we have a codependent relationship with Mexico that we should be – you know, it should be symbiotic. But until we have a rule of law, how are we going to get to symbiosis? Well, I don't even think it's the rule of law. I think it's the problem that because it's very hard to differentiate who's who when they're crossing the border, I think that's the problem where people like, you know, the assumption and the rhetoric that I hear a lot is that, you know, all these criminals, all these rapists, all these murderers are coming across the border. And that's really a small part of it, right? Very small, exceptionally small. It's a small part of it. And then... Um, in terms of like the drug cartels and that kind of thing, that's that's a violent situation. But it's it's going to be hard again to like our troops are not going to be in the cities, right? They're not going to be in the border towns of America. They're going to be literally on the border. Right. But I don't even think they're going to be. And a lot of it's really just kind of observation, you know. And I feel like that you know if they wanted more people to 
just observe the border and kind of report because they're not going to be in a position of conflict with people. But I think there is I've, a potential for that. I think but, but I think that what because there's only small numbers going right now. There's not right. a lot of forces. I mean, 250 um, people. That's not a big call up, right? You know, and then you don't for that number. A lot of from what I was I was hearing, um, and I, again I could be wrong because yeah. I, I went to Nicaragua. Um, but a lot of what I'm hearing is that a lot of it's really for observation and just kind of watching. They're not going to be in positions to, like, I don't believe the, the, the National Guard are going down there to combat the cartel. Oh, no, I, I don't think they are, and I think it clearly is kind of like a white hat UN. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Their, their beginning initial stance. But I will tell you that our mainstream media greatly under-reports the crime and the violence that's going on on the American border because it doesn't fit their narrative, okay? Well, I think and a lot of it happens on the other side of the border, to be fair. And I know we do have crimes. But it's bleeding we do, over. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely bleeding so, over. So if we have our National Guard on the border and this narco-terrorism happens and people start shooting guns, I fully expect our, our National Guard to shoot back, and that's when things ratchet up a notch. And the scary thing is that we're not addressing the underlying problem. Like, why are the cartels so powerful? Because Americans do a lot of drugs. Been because well, initially, That's because, much it. right? Because weed has was made illegal, and they made billions and trillions off weed. And now they see the train is coming on legalization, so they're moving to human trafficking, or they've already moved to human trafficking, kidnapping, sexual slavery, all this stuff that's going on, and it's all afforded by the shadow economy. And instead of, of bickering, because I personally think the left and the right, or not left and the right ideologically, but the Democrats and the Republicans yeah. don't want to fix shit, right? I think they just want to use the issue to exploit us and divide us and keep us bickering and hating each other. The reality is there's a huge economic burden on some states like California and Texas and Arizona for medical services and other things for illegal immigrants. But there's also the need of those immigrants I for, agree. for the commerce of those states. Right. You but, know what I'm saying? But here's the I'm thing. I'm sure it doesn't balance, obviously, because a lot of that money, I can honestly say I, a lot of those people come, and then a lot of that money gets sent home, but some of them are trying to but establish But it could themselves. balance, right? And the thing is, we don't want to fix it because the construction industry that gives all this money to politicians on both sides, the right. restaurant industry, all these industries that expect exploit this labor illegally and they're not held to account. It's just the immigrants that are held to account. Yeah, that's that's a you know, that's, nonsense. that's a really good point, Charles. Right. That's a really good point cuz we see I mean, we live in suburbs. I mean, you moved yeah. into you moved into central right. um Houston, but, but we both lived, lived Yeah, we time. we've lived in suburbs before and we see the people that built those communities and right. we know a lot of those people are not legal citizens, but probably their children are. So that's kind of the conundrum that right. they live in, right? But but we know that America benefits, you know, heavily off of this same. Well, some portions do. People, working class, middle class Americans don't. It creates a tax drain for them. It, it does suppress the cost of going out to eat or the cost of buying a house. Right. But it does, you know, it, it's bankrupting budgets, um, you know, government budgets for certain types of of not just entitlements but other services. And the reality is. If we didn't have the shadow economy, if they were having to participate, right, if they were having to pay taxes, which would increase the cost to their employers, then maybe it would be a wash because we do need the immigrant labor. Well, I, I think that we keep, you know, our president used this as a national conversation when it's really not a national problem. Like I was in New Hampshire, right? <laughs> I was in New Hampshire and watching Trump say we're going to build a wall and watching people in New Hampshire be supportive of that message when the drugs in New Hampshire come from, you know, 
Eastern Canada, like Montreal street gangs, you know, motorcycle gangs. That's really where their um, their drug influx is coming in. So I do, and I don't see if you've ever been to New Hampshire, you'd be very very hard pressed to find a Mexican in the state of New Hampshire, much less to find an illegal immigrant. Mexican the, from and New what Hampshire. you're not going to find, you know, when I went to Harvard, when I was in Cambridge, you're not going to find a good damn taqueria. And let me tell you something. I would like to open the borders a little more so we could get a good Mexican food all across this country. No joke. I mean, it's the best food in town. But what you are going to find... Traditional Mexican right. food, not Taco Bell, right? Like, I mean, traditional Mexican I'm a straight up, I did have Taco Bell last night at about midnight, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. But the, you know, you look at... Like New Hampshire, they were really motivated by that. Was that the state where you wore the the Raiders toughy jacket, or was that like North? No, Carolina? no, I took that to South Carolina. Okay, that's right. what that's you know, because because the whole job of, of me being in New Hampshire was to blend in about okay. as much as a black man in New Hampshire could blend in. <laughs> um, so there, I kind of wore like Apple hat. I wore a you know pea coat sweaters. I didn't didn't necessarily dress like Bun B would dress. I tried right. to blend in with the rest of the press corps that was out there. Now. Um, the the objective in South Carolina was different. Was for me to you know have a very large fan base in that area, right? Um, so it was for me to be visible, um, for people to know that Bun and B to was be there. A little confrontational and too. Well, right? to be personable, you know, right. what I'm saying, to, and to represent. Like I was hiding in in New Hampshire, right, okay. in plain sight. And in South Carolina, I was very boldly, you know, representing who I am as a person. Like I went to a Trump rally in a Raiders jacket. You know what I'm saying? You got, so you got pushed down to somewhere, right? Was that there? Uh, no, I would, would not necessarily pushed out, but forced to not. Well, no, I'll take that back because in South Carolina, we tried to go. Um, we were all basically waiting for the Trump caravan to pull in. And so everyone was waiting for good placement to stand and get good shots of Trump walking in or either leaving. And when they saw me and my collective over there, they pushed us back to the right. To the, uh, to the press that. area and demanded that we stay in the press area. Right. And if I was to leave that area again, um, that Vice's whole Vice News, Vice Media, everyone's credentials would get pulled for the rest of the and, primary. And do you think that had to do with your African Americanness, or do you I think, think it was just very no, or? because there was actually black people there in South Carolina. Um, as a part of the collective, waiting, anticipating to see Trump, and were supporters of Trump. Okay. But it was obvious that I was not one of those black people. Right. I think that's that. That was the the main thing about. It. But I feel like this whole situation with immigration and and you know the border. I think this is really they painted as a national problem, and I don't believe that um, because I live in a border state, so I see it more. Right. I hear it more. It's reported more here, so I can see California being a bit bit weary of it. I can see um, Texas being weary of it. We already know where Arizona as a whole stands on the issue, right? Um, and and I think well, not as a whole. I mean, you have. The more the the like Southern Phoenix and and the more liberal communities in in Arizona have a very different view than like Scottsdale, and I think that applies in Texas too. I, I, I mean, I, and, and, and of course California as a whole, you know, there's some speculation that Jerry Brown will refuse to send the National Guard in California to the border. Will reject the the president's order. Do you think that's right? Do you think a government a governor should be able to reject the uh, the you know? Binding executive order of the president to mobilize the. I mean, he can. I mean, he can take a stance. You know, obviously, this is a message saying that I don't stand for this. We don't support this. Right. But I don't think the government, the governor of California, has the end all, be all say when it comes to American forces. I think that right. the president um, has the right, if he wants to, whether I agree with it or not. 
right. to send troops to wherever they want to send troops. I'd rather have them go to to the border of California than sending sending more people to Syria. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to talk about. So you know, that's another area where I think the mainstream media it grossly misreports what's actually going on to achieve the narrative. Did you see John McCain come out? And, and chastise the president for not taking decisive action in response. Well, I've, I've seen the footage coming out of Syria with yeah. these. I mean, it's as war torn as any place I've ever seen in my life. Okay. I mean, it's it's really really bad. I mean, that's part of the reason why we couldn't even go to Turkey, right? On, on our trip, on yeah, our trip yeah, in 2016, right, we couldn't right. even go, and that was two years ago, right? And it's ramped up much more nowadays. And if people are using you know gas and sarin and all of that kind of stuff. That's a problem, and I think the the reason that we can't address what's going on in Syria fully, one, is because we have a president that doesn't fully support the UN, and then two, there's a very shaky um, relationship that our president has with the head of Russia. Right. I mean, obviously he's anti-Iran, and I think most people are for that point, but uh, again, I think, I think it's obvious. I mean, Russia was trying to say now that Israel is more responsible for this kind of thing. I heard, I heard, I heard Assad throw Israel into the... Right into it right now and Israel is going to be anti-Iran anyway. So well, if Iran I mean the Iran regime. doesn't doesn't believe Israel has the right to exist and I there's something that's bothered me about America is kind of how we've turned our backs on Israel in the last decade. But the you know the thing is Assad clearly is a is a is a dictator very similar to the one we deposed in Iraq, okay? Right. And that didn't but, go well. Right, that's the thing when we 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 created this evil caricature of a r- evil guy but we made him much more evil for the purposes of of justifying this never-ending war in the middle east we deposed him and then we just created a vacuum where islamist extremism just washed over that country and so many so many horror stories i think were created by our attempt to regime change i think the same thing was going to apply to assad like, so we go in and we take assad out well, then what, what happens afterwards? I mean, we've seen Libya since we've taken Gaddafi. Have you yeah, seen the no, footage just of, the, of the slave trade that is now existing in Libya? You know, like human auctions? We've, I mean, it's we've been, terrifying. We've been taking the, the lesser of two evils, right? And I don't I mean, know. I mean, I, I believe so. I think that's the problem is that, is that these, these countries, obviously, we don't agree with this, with this guy, the guy that's in right. power. But then the people that oppose him... Um, could potentially be worse than the guy that's in power. But do you really think, or do you think that there is some credibility to this notion that there is this deep state that is run by people in in, in groves and the Rothschilds and Halliburton and all these billionaires and trillionaires that well, make well, not these money, right? Not not the real, tr- <laughs> but that make money off this constant warmongering at the expense of young American men and women. A lot of times now, the army is made up of of young people of color, right? Okay, who are just joining the army to finance college, and we're sending them over there, and we've been sending them over there since '92 just to die, 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 and maybe, just maybe. But I think it goes. We further should than worry that. about us first. I, I think it's. I think it's further back than '92. I think this really goes back to Vietnam. I think that we think that, you know, we go into these countries as if, okay, you guys, you guys are screwing this up. This is how this needs to be done. Right. Right. Like as if we're, we know everything, and it shows that we don't understand these regions clearly. Because when we go in and depose these people, there are forces that have deeper and darker intentions for their country, and power corrupts. But some people. of those forces are from our own country. 
I mean, we 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 backdoor we backdoor funded people. You right. know, we backdoor um backdoor fund regimes. We backdoor fund um you know militias and what however you want to call it, but the people that are trying assassination to assassination squads. Well, I mean, we tend to do that ourselves with yeah. the CIA. We don't just fund them. We go in and teach them how to assassinate. But oh, that's no, a, no, most but, certainly. But that's a totally different argument. But I'm talking about what we go in and say, um, you know, in the same way that basically the same guns that, you know, the Taliban used to try to come against us were the same guns we gave them to fight Russia. Right. Oh, that that's the whole thing. I mean, we created the Taliban. We just just like we, I mean, we gave we Saddam had, we weapons had, we to, to keep them. Iran in check, and then we decided we didn't like Saddam anymore, so we had ten years worth of war. Yeah, because the weapons are still there. You take out the leader, but everything that you, everything else that you gave to those countries, the plans, you know, right. teaching them the training, giving them the weapons, that stays. But I mean, what, and, what do you think the solution? I mean, because there's there's one where we can be, you know, isolationists like we were in early. People forget we didn't want to get into World War II forever. I was, I was just going to yeah, say we could be isolationists, or you know, I just think if maybe we could stop warmongering. I mean, I'm all for continuing to help people. Um, you know, you have the horror stories of like Boko Haram, right. but there's no oil there, so we're not we're not spending. You know, and there's no resources right, right. for that region. So but, if there's nothing that we could see to manipulate and capitalize off of, we'll fall back on but that. But you say we? It's not we. It's these, these these oligarchs that even exist within our free market, and it's like, what's the and solution? And I think one of the solutions is that we just start worrying about. Uh, and I hate to borrow the language of Trump, but we start worrying about America first, but truly worrying about America, not just the wealthy Americans, but all Americans, but prioritize. I mean, you look at the New Deal, and I don't agree with all the taxation that came out of of FDR's uh, administration, but we did spend a lot of money on hiring Americans to fix America, right? Well, I got and, no problem with that if that, and, you know, because we could use the employment for infrastructure in this right. country for sure. But shouldn't we do that instead of fighting a war in Syria? Well, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, we are the leaders of the free world. Mm. And anywhere that democracy can and should be, we have to play a part in it. But and my, don't. And I don't have a problem with, I, I think we do. I think okay. it's imperative in, for, for this country. I think that if we see things that we can help and we have a conscious idea of who can be a better But if choice it means young African-American, young Hispanic-American, and young white, Caucasian-American, excuse me, live, are, are going over there to die... You think it's worth that cost? Well, no, but I mean, it's at the same time when you when you join the armed forces, you understand that that's. I mean, it's just like being a cop. You no, know, I we mean, I we, agree. We don't argue it. For, we don't argue that point for police. Whenever police go on the job and they don't stand up and people get killed on their watch, we condemn them. Uh, no, and I and I agree. Like I was, you know, having you're, been you're a an officer. Yeah, so. having been a police officer, I was disgusted by the cowardice that we saw at Parkland. Right. But I, I mean, I'm, I don't think we see any more cowardice. I, I think that. You, but why should we send them in there? It's like we have a choice here, and it's 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 if 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 because it's a pact that we, you know we are we are part of the UN, whether our president likes it or not, and that's part of it is to go out and help these countries that aren't, you know, in a position to help themselves, that are being overrun, that are being torn to pieces, they're being bombed relentlessly, the people are being tortured, they're starving. But we're doing the ones torturing and bombing. I mean, it's us half the time, more than half the time, right? Well, I can't say half the time. I mean, there have been times where we've gone into places, and we just talked about it, where maybe um, our intentions weren't right, right? Right. Like, I don't know what the true intentions of – of our administration is, I mean, we always say they want the oil, right? That's the common thing that Americans say. They go into the Middle that. East and they want the oil. They right. want the land. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's you know a dick contest. 
in yeah. that kind of sense because obviously we have more money and more weapons and more prosperity. But well, we just America. I think if we stand up for something, then other people will pay attention and take notice, and they come in and stand up for something. You know, and I just don't know if we're inspiring. I, I think instead that a lot of times the rest of the world is just letting us handle it at our expense while they sit back and watch. I mean, you did see a, a, a lot of people joining after 9-11. But, I mean, what's the solution? You see, it's another thing like all the, the immigration. You know, we, 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 don't, we don't see as much terrorism here as we do in, in, as they do in Western Europe. Right. But it's actually the, the radical Islamist terrorism in Western Europe is, is getting horrible. And people have run the numbers. And that it would make more sense for us to finance change, not through warmongering, but through economic assistance in the Middle East. But you can't do it that. Would in, be, but you can't do that in a zone that's actively in combat. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We can't go into a place like Syria and be like, hey, we need to fix the schools here. You know? That's not going to work because their schools are destroyed. They've been blown to pieces, and people can't worry about... Right, but they're blown to pieces by these Islamist extremists, and our media just says Assad is evil, Assad is evil, Assad is evil. But the reality is some of the people and most of the people Assad Assad is fighting... Are Islamist extremists and, and but what kind know, of does, ex- well, what does... kind of extremists is Assad then? Because it, it's comparable. Oh no, yeah, right. You, right. You know, he's, he's just a dictator. He's just a terrorist by a different name. That's all well, it is. And it's he... easy to get it's easy to get Americans upset when you throw the term radical Islamist out yeah. there. You know, it's easy to get people to be like, "Oh, well, fuck it, do what you got to do." But it's not that simple. Oh no, he's Syria. using gas to kill children. He's a horrible dictator. Right? And we know where he's getting the gas but... from. Like Syrians do not create. They don't have chemical labs there that are creating sarin, that are creating gas. They're getting it from countries that well, are getting it from North from, Korea and, you know? and Russia. But I mean, yeah. how do, like, what do we do? Like, at what point? I mean, we saw we saw Putin assassinate another couple, or at least attempt to. I think they're both right. going to be okay. I actually saw a story that the two, the father and daughter, might end up at WITSEC in witness protection here in the United States. But, I mean, you know, how do we respond to Putin's willingness to take land like Crimea? To assass- you know, extrajudicially assassinate his enemies all across the globe. I mean, what do sanctions. We do? I mean, sanctions is the beginning, right? right? And we have to have a president that's actively saying, "Hey, we're not cool with this," right? right. So that they understand that if they keep it up, there's going to be a reaction to these things. And because of the fact that our president won't adamantly say, "Hey, Russia, chill the fuck out," they're kind of just they're playing it. They're playing it. They're doing it. You know, it's just like if a kid has a parent. And the kid keeps fucking up, and the parent doesn't say anything, and it figures it's just a phase, right? Then the kid's going to keep doing it. And I feel like Putin is going to keep doing it. Putin has not, has not heard anything from this country. But a lot of it occurred on, like, Crimea and a lot of the assassinations well, yeah, yeah, that occurred didn't on Obama's now. watch. But I would like, let's, let's say Kim Jong-un. I mean, clearly our president now has made the point fuck kim jong-un right now we got kim jong-un coming to the table we've got also you know we we just saw the former president of south korea go to prison for 24 years but the the new liberal administration is more open to communication i don't i don't believe that with north korea because okay because my problem is is that north korea is beholden to china and vice versa right and we're expecting China, or you know, our president was very adamant about China's going to help handle this. China's going to help us handle this. Mm-hmm. China isn't going to help us do shit when it comes to North Korea. They need the coal, they need the labor, they need the other resources that North Korea allows for them, for as a country to keep manufacturing because that's their big business is manufacturing. 
and a lot of it is coal-based in China, and that's what North Korea does. They use the people of North Korea right. to mine the coal, and then they sell it. But you, but you talk about America's global responsibility to human beings, okay? There's yeah. not a more tragic situation than the shit going down in North Korea, right? I mean, the, to be a citizen of the North Korean government is just, I mean, you know, horrible. I mean, we can't even wrap our mind around So do we not have a responsibility to try to fix it? And do you not think that Trump's hard stance has somehow has, has engendered Kim Jong-un to come to the table? Because I think I it has. I don't think so. I think when I think this, the whole point of him saying he wants to come to the table with us is one thing. Actually getting him to the table is going to be something else. Because okay. the whole time we're talking about, yeah, we're working, we're moving forward with North Korea. What has North Korea done? They've gone to South Korea, right? right. They've had the conversation. Which was historic. Yeah, but I think the conversation is, look, we've got more in common um, right now than we've ever had because if Trump decides to attack North Korea, say from a nuclear aspect, it's impossible to keep that from floating into South Korea. If a nuclear weapon hits North Korea, South Korea is dealing with, with radiation. There's no way around it. They're too close to each other. Right. So I think now he's saying, look, I know you think I'm the enemy, but if this dude attacks me, you're going to feel the repercussions of it too. And I think now with him going to China, these are all major things. The leaders of North Korea never leave. Right, no, it's a big deal. You know, right. so I think them going to South Korea is not getting us closer to the table with them. I think it's them trying to start a dialogue with South Korea. And like, though, I know we have ideological differences, but if you guys aren't paying attention, if something happens to us, it's going to happen to you too. And I think going to China is another extension of that. They go to China and they say, look, these guys going to attack us. You know what we do for you. If they attack us, we can't do what we do for you, and no one else is going to do it. Oh, and by the way, the guy that wants to fight me owes you $800 billion already. Well, $1.4 I think, is the actual number. You know, it's, it's a crazy number. I, th I thought it was even – I thought it was like $20 trillion. But, the, I mean, at the end of the day, I think any and all dialogue is important. I think even as someone as silly as Dennis Rodman when he went to North Korea – was important. I think. I think him. I mean, we ended the Cold War, not with guns and bombs. We ended it with Americanism. We got a fucking McDonald's in Russia. Right. Okay, and people got a taste for McDonald's, right? And that's what caused communism to fall. Is people got a taste for Levi's jeans, Coca Cola, and McDonald's. I think the same holds true with North Korea. If we can get in there, especially in this rapidly. In this nation, in this in the world now, where as long as you've got an iPhone, you can see if it's connected to the internet, you can see so much that you never saw before. Well, but in these and countries, I, they're not connected right, to but, the uh, internet. But That's the, thing the thing is, the more interaction, the more chance we have to get Americanism, because you can agree or disagree. Like I think Trump should be given a chance to lead, but you know, I think I didn't vote for him. But I, I think that. Americanism is the thing. That's why people are killing themselves to, to illegally get into this country. That is why we're celebrated by everyone except the people of this country, because all we do is shit on each side, on the left and the right. All we do is shit on America. But everyone else wants to be an American, even if they deny it. And it's because Americanism is, is, is freedom and liberty and capitalism, and it's delicious, and it's sexy, and it's everything. And that's how we win with North Korea. We give them well, But we you got to understand, when, when, we, when we brought all this Americanism over to Russia, it was after the wall fell. Right? No, no, it actually caught. I mean, we, we made inroads before the wall fell, and that actually Gorbachev 
I mean, he just he allowed access yeah. to the markets, and, and then it caused it to fall. I don't see that with Kim Jong Un. I don't. I think if we send a McDonald's franchise over to North Korea, he's going to be the only person that gets to eat. McDonald's. But if, you, if you're not even having a conversation, how do you ever get there? And I think him conversing with people, it's it's the, you know, the hermit empire. And I think well, we that, can't. We're calling somebody, little, you know, little rocket man. That's not a conversation. Yeah, you know, I think you can't. Scared. You can't give. You can't give people these backhanded compliments, kind of things. You know, I think Trump has got this guy thinking this motherfucker might be crazy enough to kill me, and I think it's got him talking to people. And I, I really think that it's the one thing. Like I was, I think it's got him talking to people to be like, look, we're in this together. Yeah, I think but, it's just him trying talking, to build up more people. But he's not talking to us. That's the problem. But, he, but the, apparently they're, they've set that up. Apparently it's going to happen. Well, we don't know that because they keep moving the dead. He said it was going to happen. Right. And then once they go to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, then it becomes, well, we've got this to go through. We've got a lot of protocol. And I get it. It's Because I, when I heard it, I asked my wife, I was like, where the hell are they supposed to meet? What's the neutral ground between South North Korea, Korea and – No, I mean, there's who is it that helps – that helped. Um, I think it was Australia. Yeah. That helped get the the kid that was in a, a coma. Okay. Yeah. Right, was, right. 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 Yeah. I think it was Australia that helped negotiate. Yeah. That there's like these. You know, there's there's a couple of countries that have a, a bit of dialogue with North Korea for whatever reason. So we, it's just not us. You just said Sarah Huckabee Stan. I gotta ask you one question. Do you think that it is okay for the liberal media? The liberal portion of the media, obviously not all the media is liberal, but the liberal portion of the media and those that are huge, social justice warriors are huge on the hashtag Me Too movement. Do you think it's okay for how much they make fun of Sarah Huckabee Sanders' appearance? Like if someone was making fun of someone on the left's appearance like that, do you think that, I mean, it wouldn't be okay, right? No, no, no. I think we, I think we, you know, I think we're only talking about Saturday Night Live, really. Oh my goodness! You're not feeling well. I, we got some real world. You know that's what I. That's why I told the story about Bun talking about his stomach because Bun doesn't complain. Like it's a guy that has to be should be in the hospital before you complain. Like no one knows you're sick until you're way too sick, man. You might. I mean, you all right, brother? I'll be okay. Can we get a glass of water for the man? You had to admit so he doesn't have to. Oh, no, I'm okay with it. Man. And that, you know, while I'm going to talk while he's sitting here giving him back. You know, this is exactly the point I was trying to make at the beginning of the show, is, is Bernard doesn't ever say he doesn't feel well until he should be in a hospital, which has me tremendously concerned, Miss, Mrs. Freeman. That uh, she, does, she deals with it on a daily basis. I know. I mean, if he says he's sick, he's sick. Um, and I didn't believe it when we went to, uh, I think it was Budapest, not Prague, but when we went to, when we left him, we went to, uh, Nobu and Nobu in Budapest is pretty amazing. Um, Nobu, but Nobu anywhere is pretty, I, I thought that, oh, when we get back, Bun's going to be okay. He's going to have a rest and we're all going to, cause we had to go with, that was a night. That was the time you were supposed to perform that night. And we were all going to the club in bathrobes yeah. and you had a white bathrobe and the rest of us had black right. gumball bathrobes and when we got back and there was like a doctor standing at your door and uh yeah well i i make i make poor choices sometimes well no i don't think it's i think you're resilient i think you uh you know honestly i think you're one of those kind of those well, show must well, the, go on kind of guys well, the, the poor choice wasn't in that i had broken my hand on the first day yes and 
instead of going to the doctor then <laughs> you just wrapped it with I, a little I just brand. wrapped it and I self-medicated with Jameson and then outside of taking like eight double shots of Jameson Gold Preserve um in order to do the rally the driving like I don't I don't take pills mm-hmm. I don't do cocaine I don't take shots or whatever so the only way I could stay awake doing a lot of the driving was you know excess amounts of Red Bull Right. So I'm drinking like maybe 32 ounces of Red Bull a day, backed up with you know eight double shots of Jameson every day, and that's putting it mildly because that's just in the lobby with guys hanging out. That right. doesn't count when we go to the club and drink. And I don't even think I'd be alive today if my wife didn't take good care of me or demand certain things out of me. I didn't realize how dangerous Red Bull was. I, if you're the night we had London and tape. I had stayed up all night because I always put my son on the yeah, plane to come back and take his AP exams. He was a senior in high school. <laughs> and then I got back and I drove all day. We had Amazon in the car with me, and I had Chris in the car with me. So I had not slept at all. I hadn't even slept a wink in, in, two, in a day and a half. And I had 11 Red Bulls that day. And I told some doctor or some medical professional on Gumball, and they just looked at me like I was a complete moron, like I could have killed myself. So then I researched it on my phone. And, yeah, 11 Red Bulls for a fat, overweight, pasty, suburban lawyer is probably a bad idea. Yeah, you're you're begging for cardiac arrest at that point. Right. But are you okay? I'm okay. Yeah, like I said, that's what I've been really waiting to do all day was kind of throw it up like once just like we're drinking once you vomit you you know you get you're you're good the way you just pulled that off seamlessly and continued to podcast is I, fucking amazing don't give me too much credit we still haven't finished this thing yet we yep. still gotta we gotta wrap it up but um no i think i think there is no easy answer right for american intervention in outward you know conflict i just think that america has posited itself as you know the leader of the free world and the supporter of democracy. So whenever anyone is like, you know, look, we want to change, we want to change the government here. We want to, you know, basically throw out the guy that's here, which is usually some kind of dictator that has the military behind him and try to bring in democracy. And, you know, every region doesn't accept democracy as easily as we think they will. Right. You know, so we go in and we say, hey, we'll help you. But then you guys got to get up a you know a proper voting system. But we don't stay there. To, you know, voting voting outside of America can get very corrupt very easily. We see that with Russia. It's very hard to maintain these kind of things without us kind of staying there. Um, but that being said, I agree with you on putting our young people, you know, and at risk. But a lot of these kids that fight for this country now because we don't have a draft in state or anything like that and I hope to God he doesn't install it's the poor it is but it, it's also but these people also they act like there was two brothers um from Texas that um have been trying to be you know get their legalization status together and they've been active in the military and they say they join the military because they love this country right and they want to fight to protect this country these guys know what they're getting into right now you can say you're going there for for it to pay college for you, but you also understand that if there's a conflict, you're going to go. No, no, I, I mean I understand. But I'm not I, saying I it's I fair. Or it's right. That's just the reality but I, of I it. I just don't think that. I mean, basically, we use 9/11 to justify this this giant war in Afghanistan and I and Iraq that 
I mean, just we lost so many American lives. And at some point, I would just like us to focus on American, American issues. And I think, at least on this hemisphere, on this side of the world, if we ended the war on drugs, legalized marijuana, cocaine, whatever, and I'm a radical. I know people disagree with me, and I, you're wrong. I'm right, everybody. But if we legalized all drugs and treated addicts like a medical issue, and then still, if like you get high on coke and you hurt someone or rob someone, you go to jail. It's not a fucking right. excuse. But we're but, doing it now with the opioid epidemic, and right. I feel like you know, obviously, as a but person, but that's of just color, drugs for the rich, right? I mean, uh, you know, like I know, you, you, I mean, you're a lawyer and you you were a cop during the the era. You understand that. The crack era dealt with a dem- different demographic and a different community. Opioids is a di- totally different demographic from that one. And I, it's a I lot do. easier to have sympathy for people that look like you. I'm not. I'm just saying that's a reality. Of oh, people. but but I've been. Anti- I mean, I did my paper about ending the war on drugs in, at Harvard in 2000. So it's not like this is a, a newfound belief system for me. As a policeman. I, I think I arrested one guy for weed. I would throw away weed and coke to the point I got in trouble for it once. I mean, I'm just not, I've never been. I was a conscientious objector to the war on drugs as a police officer. I just don't think we should police people wanting to injure themselves. I think that the police should return to the night watch and merely serve as a function to protect people against people that want to harm them or steal from them and take from them. But we're talking about America and we talk about democracy. Then we see Stefan Clark and we see all the stuff that's going on in America and we hear the rhetoric coming from critical race theorists that, you know, it's this white patriarchy and it's evil. How do you reconcile those two for you? Like the, 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 the left's purely anti-American stance that this is an evil government or an evil country filled with white patriarchy versus your stance that America is the leader of the free world for the free world. Well, I think it's. I think it's. I think they're both true. I don't think they ha- they have to be, um, you know, you know, individual ideas. I think you can. I think America lives and deals with both of those aspects. Okay. I don't think America is is simply one way or or simply another way. You and I talk about the fact that it's impossible to be purely Democrat or purely. Right, you know, purely Republican. Those are those are just titles. I think we're expected to, to be, but it's idiocy. Yeah, it's it's absolutely impossible. I have things that I have a conservative bend on. I have things that I have a liberal consent on. You know, what right. I'm saying right. I'm I'm fiscally conservative. You know, saying, but I'm I'm you know lifestyle and morally, I'm more liberal. Right. You know, and I feel like being honest about the fact that you're not purely one thing is what's getting lost in the conversation. And I think that's why it's harder for us to get to where we're trying to get as a country. There's great things about this country I love. There's things about this country I am not proud of. But I am proud to still be a part of this country, and I'm I'm happy to be an American. Um, I'm just not happy with America all the time. And I don't think think those two issues are mutually exclusive. I think you can live in a country where, you know— you can be anti-government and still love America, you know? I right. Think. I mean, that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm anti I, – I consider myself a libertarian, right? So right. I'm anti-government, but I've also been part of the government, right? <clears throat> you know, and it's, it's a conundrum. Like, I think traffic ticketing is just regressive tax on the poor, and it's just this circular of, circle of criminality. But I was a municipal court judge for right. a decade where I dismissed a whole bunch of cases because I was disgusted by it. But I, I don't think – that's the thing. I think you have, if, even if you've got a problem with the system, if you don't participate – and I think it's the same thing with conversations. I think there are a lot of conservatives that hear Jay-Z say we've got to deal with, with white male privilege in America as if we've got to create a new system of bias against white men. 
and when you have the 17 million, like you, you have a, a greater percentage of African Americans that live in poverty, right? Of, of the course. aggregate African American community. So I think it's like <laughs> 9 million. But then you have 18 million white Americans that live in poverty. Okay, so you have a much larger number, twice as many white Americans that live under the poverty line than you do African Americans. So when they hear something like, we have to do something about white male privilege, which basically means the government, Jay-Z wants the government to step in and create a new paradigm of, of discrimination, how do, how do you think that re- resonates with people that have been poor for generations and they, they are super white? You know, well, I mean, I, I I think people hear it and they immediately draw conclusions. But I mean, feeling a certain way and having a government that's actively going to do something about that is a totally different thing. I don't, and I think it's a great, you know, that he feels that way. But I think he doesn't, you know, I'm not going to say what he doesn't understand. But I think we have to realize that, you know, the government and billionaires in America are not separated as much as we would like them to be. I think there's a lot of money that's gone into a lot of pockets that make it much harder for people, even if they feel that way, to actively move that way. We look at it with Parkland. I mean, we look at it with um, Sandy Hook. You know, we no one wants children to be shot, right? right? No one wants children killed on campuses. But at the same time, no one wants to give up their guns. Well, right? some people do. I mean, you have... And, I mean, I think that... But I don't think people want to give up their guns. I think people would like to see stronger restrictions well, for access you, to guns. But even actually, people... But even Look people... what happened to Killer Mike. I mean, Killer Mike had an intelligent conversation with a representative of the NRA, and he was vilified by the media. And I, I think Mike, you know, I'm talking I think about Killer Mike. Was the, the, I think the timing was the issue with but Mike. But he had actually think... done I mean, but it was, a, it was a, and I hate to use the word woke because I'm cracker as hell, but, I mean, it was, he is the most woke, intelligent, well-spoken person I've ever met in my life. Like, remember the first time he introduced us? Me and yeah. him could have talked all fucking night. But you the guy's a genius, and he speaks truth, <laughs> and he got eviscerated because, because he's you, pro-gun. Even if you're pro-gun, right, you can't be pro-gun in the midst of children being killed by guns. It's just in poor taste. It's just in, it's just the timing. And I feel like But Mike, don't you think you should I, respond to the the anti-gun people? I mean, they're the ones that put the conversation out there. Yeah, but he can have that conversation without having it with the NRA. And I think him having that conversation with the NRA is the problem because we all know that a lot of government officials, especially people that, you know, you look at a Marco Rubio where this happened in his state and he's, you know, less reluctant to stand up for it because he's already taken millions from the gun lobby. And I just think I think that if Killer Mike had this conversation, um, you know, just being interviewed by any other entity other than the NRA, that we might be a little bit more receptive to it. But that's, th- that's my thing. I, I just think, think it's it was- the lack of reception. That's all, like nowadays, and then the right is just as much to blame. Right? I'm not saying this is a left issue, but we just want to scream and attack at anyone that has a divergent issue, interest in us, and that's the one of the things I enjoy about talking with you and talking with Mike and talking with Zero and talking. But we managed to have a conversation where we agree to disagree. America was founded on people that agreed to disagree. Now, they were all white men at the time, but they were, you know, I mean, we had very divergent political views that all coalesced to form a government. Um, You know, and it's like, fuck, man, nobody wants to talk anymore. And and I'm not saying you're going to win and convince people that you're right or you're wrong. I'm always right. But, I mean, it's it's the willingness to talk. Don't you see that dying here? And then when somebody does, he gets vilified. Well, yeah, because we have people, you know, to be very honest on both sides, our politicians are not beholden to us. We like to say that, right? We like to say that. 
but it's not true. It just simply isn't true. There are entities that spend a lot more money and work very hard to get their issues put on the table, to get their bills put on the board. Bought and fucking paid for. Absolutely. And that's on both sides. You know, that's right. We see this all the time. I think that's a big part of this NRA situation and gun control is that too many people have already taken campaign money, which campaign money is a big deal for a politician. Literally, the day you're elected, you have to immediately start fundraising for the next time you're going to run. Right. And it takes money from that, more money than most people will get from the common American. You know, these these... These big lobbies, lobbyists, they come in and they have all this kind of money to throw around because people need millions and millions of dollars just to run a campaign, not necessarily run an office or, you know, to be in office or whatever. Right. But when it comes time to compete, when it comes time to start running radio ads and start cutting TV commercials, they need millions and millions of dollars in order to get their point across stronger to more people. And that money, unfortunately, comes from entities that we're not proud of all the time. The cigarette lobby group, you know, the but gun how control we, what's lobby. The, what's the solution? Like, I mean, do we have publicly funded campaigns? Do we restrict it? I mean, the Supreme Court really opened the floodgates to to corporate influence on American elections, okay? It's With the PACs. It's United. the PACs and the super PACs, right? right? So, so how do we fix it? I mean, do we restrict – you know, right now, corporate speech is considered individual speech, and I think that's a fiction – created by our Supreme Court that our founding fathers would have never gone along with, right? I think you know, there's a difference between corporations and human beings. But how do we how do we fix it? I mean, like, we we know now the Koch brothers, all their campaign money is just trying to influence them getting what they want. It has nothing to do with a conservative ideology. And even the George Soros. Yeah, I, can agree, I, right. I, can, I can agree that on both sides we've got right. issues with people Pushing agendas, right? right. And right. They're, they're both they're almost all... certainly Soros. Soros yeah. is pushing an anti-American globalist agenda, and I mean, it's, it, how do we fix that, man? Well, again, I think it comes to down to campaign money reform. You know, yeah. we have to be a lot more stricter on that. Um, also, um, needs to be more visible where the money is coming from, right? Because if we don't pay attention to it, we get more Betsy DeVoses in these offices that don't know anything about it. I have problems with people like her. But Betsy just has a different idea. She believes in homeschool and magnet schools and private schools. And right, but she should be open to every option. She shouldn't. But, but people and she on spent, the left aren't open to every her, option. The DeVos family um, and every, has spent over two hundred million dollars. Okay, over the over the over the last couple of years. Um, being anti-public school, and then they want to take charter fund money, uh, charter school money from the public. You know, they want us to pay for charter schools that a lot of our children okay. aren't going to get in. Okay, but do you think when we, you we see do a the lot better taking that money and increasing the quality of our schools, of our public schools, rather than say, okay, the public school system is dead. We should push everything towards charter, but everybody's not going to make it into a charter school. But if there's a lot of it's lottery, money. it's funding. But it's, you, you know, look at it. I mean, the public <clears> school system in Baltimore. In parts of Houston. I mean, it's broken. So how do we fix it if we don't try innovative ideas to try to fix it? Because, I mean, clearly the, the teacher unions uh, have, a, have a stranglehold on a lot of innovation. Clearly, the, these, 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 we're teaching to pass the test in public schools. That, now, that, that is very true. We, we're not educating children anymore. Right. We're only priming them for tests. Right. They stop everything when it's test period time. They just did it last week. I mean, the what is it, the star test or whatever? Yeah, star test. Star test. That starts this week. Right. You know, and so my, my own granddaughter, you know, they, they stopped everything that they had been doing. Right. And just, you know, geared them towards the test, which has nothing to do with preparing them for the future. That's all about funding. 
It's about getting the best test scores you can get so that the school that's why that's why public school kids aren't getting the real education that they need and that they deserve because the school system doesn't have enough money from the government to give the quality of education that kids need. And so schools have to basically fight. You saw in Atlanta, they were cheating on the test, giving the kids the, right, the answers. Right, prison over it. You know what I'm saying? Because it's, I mean, well, they're doing what they can to get money to their school. If you have a, a city, and I'm not going to go into a big city, let's say there's a city that has maybe 30 public schools and four charter schools. You can't concentrate on the four charter schools because the other 30 schools will continue to get less and less funding, and the situation is going to get worse. Now, I'm not saying charter schools don't work. We live in a city where our charter school system is actually pretty good. It's Kip phenomenal. Is, Kip is a very, very good. I would love for everyone's kids to be able to go to KIPP, but there simply isn't enough room. That doesn't mean that we start neglecting the kids that well, can't but, get into KIPP. KIPP will also put kids out that are messing up. Right. I mean, KIPP, you know, one of the, you know, KIPP, if you don't want to be there, you ain't going to be there. And that's one of the ways they do such a good job. But if we created the system, I mean, that's, I mean, we, that's a problem, and people like to paint it just in the African-American community. That's bullshit. In, in most impoverished communities of any color, well, I think achievement in, homes, in school is seen as being a negative for many kids in school. So when you have this impoverished community where being a tough guy is more important than being an academically successful guy, and what Kip has done is Kip has gone into those areas and said, we're going to make it fucking cool to just be an academic achiever or an athletic achiever. I don't, How I don't, do we change that paradigm in public schools? Well, I don't see, here's the problem. I don't see that as just being a public school problem because if you go into the suburbs, it's, it's about kids wanting to be cool. Most no, kids now, kids but now worse are, are rejecting. Yeah, no, it's obviously worse because the numbers are great. Right. But, no, I mean, it's all about, you know, it's not cool to be into school, period. Yeah, but I do right think now. it's some co- like I think at Kip it is. I think like I obviously I mean moved, in public school. I system. mean, well, you know, right. And then most kids in the suburbs are going to private school, and those kids well, are most terrible are, now. But that's well, and see, those kids I are getting better because that's the thing. Like we moved to Friendswood for the public schools, and then decided to put the kids in a private school. And I think in a, in a very expensive, but I think in a private school you and it was one that would throw you out if you got in trouble. Right. And so you had much more engaged children and much more engaged parents. And, and is, is that fair? No. Well, That's yeah, why and, I work all the time to pay for that shit. You know, I prioritize that over other stuff. You know. Well, and in the inner cities, you have more of a, you have more more of an, um, how do I say this? More of a propensity to broken homes. Right. And you have, and because of that, you have parents that have to work very hard in order to provide for the child. Usually so, one parent. Yeah. Right. So they're very they're they're a lot less involved in the school process. Right. Right. They're a lot less likely. I don't even know what a parent teaching associ- teachers association even looks like in two thousand and eighteen. Right. But I know a lot of parents that I mean, they're not going. They're just not going and they're not as involved in their ch- children's education. They assume that the school's gonna take care of that and it's that well, it's wasn't... not just the schools. I mean, I saw that as a judge on my juvenile dockets. I could tell almost immediately if the behavior was an aberration or something that was learned in the home by my initial interaction with the parent or the parents. Right. When the parent was frustrated to be there and their only concern was they needed to leave as quickly as possible, I knew that uh, me talking to the kid's not really going to help. It's not going to help. When you had a parent that was invested and upset and angry with the kid and (laughs) wanting to find a solution, especially when you had two parents, whether they're biological parents or not, but you had two parents there, 
I knew that I could have a conversation and try to get through to that kid. And it's heartbreaking because we are talking young kids. And I, as a judge still, I feel like we hyper-criminalize being a kid today. Like, I don't think getting in a fight at school should get your ass arrested, right? If I, would, if I got arrested every time I got a fight in high school, I'd have never done anything with my life, right? Because I used to get in fucking fights. Uh, I think you get pops or I think you get sent home. I mean, I mean, but, uh, but my problem is, you know, and I, 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 this, this is not just in school, but this is period. There has to be, um, there has to be discipline, right? right? That's one. But then the discipline has to be consistent, right? Right. So a kid can't be in one environment where discipline is strict and hey, you have to do this or else, and then go to another environment where there's, you know, you talk about broken homes, so they won't go from one house to the next. Well, not even that. If if the school is stricter than the home, then right. the school doing something to the kid and hoping that the parents is going to see it their way is not going to work. A lot of times, I see parents go up to these schools, and their children can do no wrong in their eyes. So the problems of home are never even addressed. It's the school's problem. Well, it's your job to make sure he gets an education. It's your job to make sure that people don't fight him and that kind of thing. And that's not true. There has to be a set of discipline at home that agrees with whatever the educational okay. system is doing. If Because if, if, if I'm your counselor and I'm concerned about things and I think you should be reprimanded for things, but then every time I try to reprimand you, a parent comes up and, and takes the child's side immediately, oh, yeah. we're not going to solve anything. And eventually that kid's going to turn around and, you know, proverbially bite the parent, you know? So how do you think we fix that, though? How, and across communities, but but your community. Well, how I mean, do you think you fix it with them? Well, obviously, you know, we need... You know, we need to, con to to address the concerns with the propensity to lock black men up. Okay. You know, because that's what keeps the father figure out of the home. And it also keeps the big brother concept right. away from home as well. That's why kids gravitate. Kids are going to go to anyone that's willing to listen to them, hear them out, give them emotional support. And in the inner city, unfortunately, a lot of times for certain children, that's a gang. No, no, I agree. I mean, I had that conversation as a policeman that you'd have 50 kids in a gang and only three of them would be horror stories. The other 47 just didn't want to get beat up walking to the Big Seven, so they had to join or set. Or oh, they don't want to be home. Right. A lot of times these kids don't want to be in the home. But the I circumstances mean, are dire. Parents are so almost So how do you fix there. it? I mean, like, I think you fix everything. I think you fix the chasm between the African-American community and the police community, which is becoming increasingly diverse. By ending the war on drugs. I think you've fixed the incarceration epidemic of African-American men by ending the war on drugs. If we're just putting fucking people in jail that are hurting people and robbing people, and I don't care what fucking color you are, if you're robbing people or hurting people or stealing from people, go your ass to fucking jail. I agree with but that. But if you're just using drugs, you're caught with drugs, you're hanging on the corner smoking weed, crack, whatever, I don't care. I don't want you in jail. So, but the thing is, we're not getting anything done. The left's not getting anything done. The right's not getting anything done. Well, it's, I mean, because these things often become... Points of, you know, <clears throat> the right tends to use the statistics to say we need more police, we need this, we need more government, we need stronger, more cops on the street. And people are like, yeah, we do. If all these guys are out here doing all these drugs and selling these drugs and being in gangs, yeah, but no one looks at how these kids got in those positions, and which is what you're talking about. Right. You have to be, understand the circumstances in which some of these things have grown out of. And, and you know, yeah, I, I mean, I mean it's, I not, do, it's not an easy fix, we, believe But me. let's say we legalize all marijuana. These think about all the, all the... Well, but think about the see legalization. I think we should legalize we, we, hard drugs as well. well. No, I agree. And, but legalization of marijuana creates a new economy, not a shadow economy, but a new economy that benefits the state and the individual. And I mean, look, you know, I don't smoke weed because it's illegal, but I drink. It's horrible for me, right? The moment weed's legal, 
No, I'm smoking weed with you. I was just going to say, you right. getting high? I'm getting high with you. Now, I've already told my daughter, who is at Harvard and Massachusetts, it might be legal <laughs> there, but it ain't legal for your ass to get to school. But I'm it's still paying for her life. But that's the thing. Weed becomes legal. I probably never pick up another thing of whiskey. Okay? You know, I, I probably just smoke out with... See, now I'm going to push for legalization of marijuana more than ever. Just to smoke just, with me? No, just to smoke. <laughs> well, for one, just to smoke with you, and then also so you're not whiskeyed out. Which I've known you for many years. You never drive drunk. Oh, no, no. I now, drink you, maybe once every two weeks, but I drink a lot when I do. You no, see you, me? You, you, you drink. I give it to you. But you're, I will, you're a big guy. It takes a lot to get to the right. bottom of that bottle. There you go. But again, we this is this podcast has gone way <laughs> off track here. Charles, I want to thank you for coming in today and uh, suffering you know, with me. No, today. thank you for having me, sir. It's always a pleasure. I was, hopefully, if you all back from Florida, I'll see you next week. I hope everybody enjoyed the podcast as always. Thank you for tuning in to Trilitics. And uh, hopefully, we'll have something to talk about next week, which usually means our government's upside down. Thank you guys for tuning in. God bless you. Talk to you next week. <laughs>